Hi everyone, Michael A. Bryan here from the Oracular School of Astrology. And today we are continuing our lecture series on mastering traditional astrology. If you haven't tuned in already to our previous two videos in this series, I highly encourage you to do so now because the previous two videos really lays down the foundation of how we are beginning this process of not only deepening our current astrological practice, but also learning astrology from scratch. If this is your very first time diving into anything particularly astrological. Today, we're going to be talking about the Thema Mundi or the birth chart of the world. And while many people have heard about the Thema Mundi and have spoken about the Thema Mundi before, we tend to do things a little bit differently at Oraculos. So I really hope that you find this intriguing and insightful and as always, deeply educational. If this is your first time tuning into the Oraculos podcast, please make sure that you not only like this video, but also subscribe to the Oraculos podcast wherever you find us on the internet. And if you're listening or watching to this video on YouTube, make sure that you hit the notification bell so that you receive notifications of when we come out with these videos, which we tend to do on a weekly basis. Now, before we dive into our video for today, I do want to let you know that if you want to study with us in a deeper way here at Oraculos, then the best place to do that is in our upcoming Foundations of Classical Astrology program. The Foundations of Classical Astrology is where I teach all the things that you need to know in order to begin a lifetime practice of astrology on a solid foundation. The FOCA program or Foundations of Classical Astrology is also the beginning of our two-year Excellence in Astrology programs. So if you want to dive into becoming a professional astrologer, or if you want to really deepen your current astrological practice as it is, then by all means, please feel free to sign up for our Foundations of Classical Astrology program this coming fall 2022. And if you want to find out more about our Foundations of Classical Astrology program, you can visit our website at www.oraculosastrology.com forward slash programs. And someone asked me the other day if it's okay to bring a friend. Yes, of course, please do bring a friend, bring as many friends as you like, as many friends who have a deep and burning passion for astrology, because this is definitely a place where those passions come alive in a truly magical way. So I look forward to seeing all of you there in our upcoming Foundations of Classical Astrology this coming fall 2022. Now, for the topic of the day. Today, we're going to be talking about the Thema Mundi. The Thema Mundi is a teaching tool that we find within classical astrology that was used to teach several topics from one diagram. Thema Mundi means the world chart or the world theme, and we tend to think of it as the birth chart of the world. The Thema Mundi is a wonderful starting place in terms of learning astrology in a deeper way because it teaches us not just the topic of domicile rulerships and this concept of signs of the zodiac being ruled by particular planets, but it also teaches us the foundations of aspects in astrology and why we consider some aspects to be bad or evil aspects from a traditional astrological perspective, and why we consider some aspects to be good or beneficial from a traditional astrological context. Now, when we hear these words like good and evil, it tends to put a lot of people on the edge of their seats. And I dare say that the good doesn't put people on the edge of their seats, but this notion of evil tends to put people on their edge because we don't really like to talk about evil, particularly in the modern astrology that we find so many of us practicing within the 21st century. There seems to be something wrong about talking about evil within the context of astrology. However, in traditional astrology, the purpose of the traditional astrologer was to describe all the facets of life, the good, the beautiful, the evil, the ugly, and everything in between. 
And so what we find in traditional astrology is a really sobering understanding of life as it is. Not life as it's sugarcoated to make us all feel better about ourselves, but fundamentally life as it is with all of its multivalence. And so today we're going to be taking a look at that notion through the lens of classical astrology so that we can understand how classical astrology was built and why we tend to hold certain concepts or certain ideas from a classical astrology perspective while still holding within ourselves the knowledge that life is a wonderful nuanced experience that interacts or that brings in all of these threads of the positive, the negative, the light, the dark, the good, the evil into a wonderfully kaleidoscopic version of our own individual lives. And beyond that, I think that it's also important for us to remember that there is a version of astrology that has nothing to do with us at all, which is something that a lot of people don't tend to realize in the 21st century or in modern astrology in general. Today, when we talk about astrology, we tend to talk about astrology in a very overly personalized way. And therefore, when we say things like good planets and evil planets, it tends to freak people out. Because if these planets are meant to describe us and only us, then no one really wants to be associated with an evil planet. And we all want to be associated with the good planets. But ultimately, at the end of the day, there is a version of astrology that supersedes our individual human experience. And that version of astrology is astrology on its own terms. So when we speak about topics like the planets or even the signs of the zodiac, we really should try to ground ourselves in what those things mean by themselves before superimposing those concepts onto our own lives. Because when we throw those concepts onto our lives, we diminish our ability to really speak about the vastness and the objective understanding of those planets as they are in a way that allows us to feel as if we're engaging in critical thinking, essentially, but also in a way that allows us to feel as if we're able to engage in a critical discussion about these different astrological factors without necessarily feeling as if someone is pointing a finger at us. So today, when we speak about the signs of the zodiac in reference to the theme of Mundi, and also when we speak about the planets in reference to the theme of Mundi, the first thing you have to know is that it has nothing to do with you at all. Now, with that being said, let us dive into our presentation today on the Thema Mundi, the birth chart of the world. Do enjoy. So once again, our topic for the day is the Thema Mundi, the birth chart of the world. And the Thema Mundi is a convenient diagram because it allows us to kill many birds with one stone. And here we have it, the Thema Mundi. Now, we consider the Thema Mundi to be the birth chart of the world because the Thema Mundi is meant to describe the world at its creation or the world at its beginning. And so within the Thema Mundi, the first thing that we have to decide is if we are to personify the world, as many of us have personified the world within our lives as being a mother or as being a progenitrix or a creatrix, then how would we like for the birth chart of the world to begin? Or rather, where would we like for this birth chart of the world to begin from? And one would think that if we were describing the birth chart of the world's mother, then we would like for that birth chart of the world to begin from a maternal place. And that's essentially where we find ourselves with the theme of Mundi. We find ourselves in a cosmos that already contains the 12 signs of the zodiac. And we also find ourselves in a cosmos that contains the seven classical planets of Saturn, Jupiter, Mars, Sun, Venus, Mercury, and the Moon, all looking for a domicile for themselves or some place to call their individual homes. Now, the first thing that we want to talk about is the signs of the zodiac. The word zodiac that we have within the English language comes from the classical Greek word zodion. And that zodion refers to animals or living creatures. 
Now, when we add to the animal portion of that, this suffix of eon, we know that we have eon being a suffix that oftentimes is associated with a particular location. And within classical Greek, eon is a suffix that is associated with the name of a particular location. So when we join these two parts of the zoidia or the zodia and the eon together to form this zodion, what we end up having is something that can be read as a location of living creatures or a location of living animals. Now, the way that I like to think about this is that this location that's represented by the 12 signs of the zodiac are actually temples. And the living creatures or the living animals that we find within those 12 temples are the actual planets. So for me, when I interpret this word zodion, I interpret this to mean essentially the temple of the living creatures or the temple of the living animals. And that's where we find ourselves at when we look at the theme of Mundi. We're looking at the temple of the living creatures or rather the 12 temples of the living creatures and the living creatures within those 12 temples are actually the seven classical planets of Saturn, Jupiter, Mars, Sun, Venus, Mercury, and the moon. So at this moment, we begin trying to figure out where should we give or which temples should be given to which signs of the zodiac? And what is the central reason for that? Within the theme of Mundi, we find here in the first house of the world's natal chart, the sign Cancer. Now, for those of you who aren't currently familiar with the houses in astrology, the first house in classical astrology is called the horoscopus or the hour marker. It's also called the helm. And insofar as it's called the helm, it represents the part of our lives from which we direct our lives. It represents how we navigate ourselves through this physical universe. The ascendant is to a very large degree, the quantum of energy that all of us have from which to not only live our lives, but it's also the quantum of energy that feeds the rest of our natal charts. So the ascendant is probably the most vital part of the chart from a traditional astrology perspective because the ascendant represents the soul and the psyche of the entity that is being born. And it is the soul and the psyche of the person who we are describing and the lived experiences that we are describing that that person has. So the ascendant within the world's horoscope had to be given a sign that was most conformable to who we consider the world to be. And we consider the world to be a cosmic mother. We consider the world to be a cosmic womb of sorts. We consider the world to be the sum total of all of the experiences of our ancestors that constitutes our heritage and that also constitutes this actual tangible world that we have inherited from those ancestors. And so for the ancients, they wanted to find a sign of the zodiac that was most conformable with this. So there had to be certain characteristics. First of all, that sign had to be a feminine sign. Second of all, that sign had to be associated with an element that we already naturally associated with our earth. And as we remember, if we go back to Claudius Ptolemy, the element that Ptolemy associated with the earth besides the actual physical reality of the earth itself, the element that Ptolemy associated to the earth was moisture and water by way of moisture. So we needed a sign that was feminine. We needed a sign that was also a water sign. We needed a sign that had the ability to preserve life or nurture life, or to specifically, in a sense, be a mother. And we needed a sign 
that even though it was a water element sign, it still had the ability to preserve the burgeoning flame of a new life that needed to be born. So there were several specifications that we needed. We needed a feminine sign, a watery sign, a sign that was naturally associated with motherhood, and a sign that also naturally had the ability to protect the burgeoning flame within it. So it couldn't be so deeply watery that through its wateriness, it drowned out the unborn flame. It had to be watery in a way that was still able to hold fire without destroying that fire through its watery nature. Now, as we look at the 12 signs of the zodiac, we find within those 12 signs, three water signs. And those three water signs are Cancer, Scorpio, and Pisces. So in a sense, any of these three water signs could have been a contender for this notion of being the rising sign at the dawn of the world, because all of these water signs fundamentally are feminine signs that are also having this element of water within them that corresponds with the water that we know is germane to our Earth planet. However, in Scorpio, we find a destructive sense of the water element, destructive insofar as Scorpio representing the middle portion of the season of fall represents the folliest part of fall. And by virtue of it representing the folliest part of fall, the ancients thought that it was as a result of Scorpio and the poison from the sting of the scorpion that caused the leaves to change in the autumn time and that caused the trees to die even while those trees were still standing. The ancients thought that it was this poison of Scorpio that tainted the air and that caused all of the earth to perish. Therefore, Scorpio could not be chosen as being the rising sign of the birth charge of the world because Scorpio naturally was associated with this malefic quality of being a sign that brought in its wake death. Also, within the sign of Scorpio, we find a portion of the sky known as the Via Combusta or the burning road. Today, within our current astrological framework, we consider the Via Combusta or the burning road to range from 15 degrees of Libra to 15 degrees of Scorpio. And the Via Combusta is thought to be one of the most malefic stretches of the zodiac because it is particularly associated with death. So we find death being doubly mentioned in relationship to Scorpio. We find death being mentioned by virtue of Scorpio having this association with the folliest part of fall in general, i.e. the poisonous part of autumn when everything, the foliage is changing color and everything is dying where it stands. And we also have Scorpio being associated with death by virtue of Scorpio's relationship to the Via Combusta, having one half of the Via Combusta run through one half of its sign. We know that all signs of the zodiac have 30 degrees of zodiacal longitude that belong to them. Therefore, if 15 degrees of Scorpio is associated with the worst part of heaven, i.e. the via combusta, then that is one half of our experience of Scorpio that we consider to be malefic or unsupportive of life. Therefore, Scorpio could not be the rising sign at the birthing of the world. Pisces, on the other hand, insofar as the ancients were concerned, could possibly have been a contender. However, the reason why it could not be a contender is for two reasons. One, we know that Pisces represents the last portion of the winter period. And we know that the winter season in general is deeply associated with death and dying within the natural world. Therefore, Pisces, though it does not carry the same sting that Scorpio carries, 
Pisces also has this association with death and annihilation from a traditional astrological perspective. And for that reason, because of Pisces's relationship to the end of winter, Pisces also could not have been considered to be the sign that was rising at the birthing of the world. The other reason why Pisces was not the sign that was rising at the birthing of the world is because Pisces represents a boundlessness within water. Pisces represents the unbounded insofar as the 12 signs of the zodiac is concerned. And it is that unboundedness that we find within Pisces that doesn't really allow Pisces to be able to nurture the unborn flame that is still young and that is still fragile at the beginning of the world. And therefore, because of this unboundlessness of the ocean within which the two fish of Pisces find themselves swimming, we find that Pisces does not have any of the characteristic qualities in order to really hold this unborn flame at the beginning of the world. Therefore, the only sign of the zodiac that we have that continues to hold this notion of being able to do justice is the sign of cancer. Cancer had this association because cancer is a feminine water sign, but cancer also, though being a water sign, doesn't represent water in its most destructive, as we see in Scorpio, which is fixed water, neither does it represent water in its most volatile, which is what we see in Pisces as being mutable water. We see the first bubbling up or the first gushing forth of water in Cancer, since Cancer represents the beginning of her season. So we see the first bubbling up, the first rushing up to the surface of water. But what we also find within cancer is this association with the newborn fire. Because within the 12 signs of the zodiac, cancer represents the beginning of summer. And that wet and watery womb of cancer is wet enough and watery enough so that the first initial rays of sunshine during the summer don't completely obliterate and destroy our world, but it's also wet enough and watery enough so that that fire can continue to burn in an equable way without being completely extinguished. And so therefore cancer of the three water signs becomes the best candidate to be the sign that was rising at the birth chart of the world. Another thing that's interesting about the three water signs collectively is that the water signs are considered to be fruitful signs in classical astrology. So in classical astrology, we have some signs that are considered barren signs. We have some signs that are considered semi-fruitful signs. And we have some signs that are considered to be fruitful signs. And in general, the three water signs of Cancer, Scorpio, and Pisces are all considered to be fruitful signs. And of them, we might consider Cancer to be the most fruitful of them all because of the things we've already outlined. So that was the first thing, choosing which sign would be the rising sign at the beginning of the world. Now, if we've chosen which sign will be the rising sign at the beginning of the world, the next thing that we have to do is to choose which planet, which of these planetary deities is going to call this sign his or her temple. And the planet that was chosen to have Cancer as her temple was a planet that was thought to be most in conformity with the nature of Cancer. And that planet was the moon. The things that Cancer and the moon share in common are that Cancer is a feminine sign and the moon is a feminine planet. Cancer is a nocturnal sign or a nighttime sign and the moon is a nocturnal planet. Or Cancer is a water sign 
And the moon, as we learned earlier from Ptolemy, has a natural association with water and with our planet Earth in general. Though being a water sign, Cancer also has this association with heat since Cancer represents the beginning of summer. And as we saw in Ptolemy already, the moon also has this association with heat since the moon is in a sense, the consort of the sun. Therefore the moon appropriates unto herself some of the heat of the sun for the purpose of further creating, supporting and sustaining life. Therefore, we see a complete harmony between both Cancer and the Moon because of what we consider their intrinsic natures to be. So, at the beginning of the world, we begin by having Cancer being the rising sign of the world. Therefore, we call this world Mother because we would have first called Cancer Mother. And similarly, we consider Cancer to be the temple of the moon or the primary home of the moon. And therefore we consider the moon to be the primary ruler of cancer. Now this concept of homes and temples from a traditional astrological context takes us to this word domicile. A domicile within traditional astrology is the primary sign that belongs to a planet. There are different levels of rulership within traditional astrology. So we can't really just use the word rulership as a universal term because that term doesn't actually reflect the different levels of nuance that we find in the notion of rulership in general. So the moon is the domicile ruler of cancer and that's it. There are other levels of rulership, such as exaltation, for example. And we know that Jupiter is the exaltation ruler of Cancer, whereas the moon is the domicile ruler of Cancer. We'll go into the topic of the exaltations in another lecture, but today we're just focusing primarily on this notion of domiciles. So we have Cancer being the rising sign at the beginning of the world, and we have the moon being the domicile ruler of cancer at the very inception of the world. Now, the next thing that we said was that the moon is the consort of the sun. And therefore, the moon and the sun always have to be close together, no matter where they are within an astrological context, their primary or root relationship has to express the fact that the moon and the sun are lady and lord, respectively, and that the two of them are eternally wed one to the other. Therefore, if we found a place for the moon to call her domicile or her temple or her home, we also have to find a place for the sun to call his domicile or his temple or his home. But we couldn't just choose any place within the zodiac for the sun to have as his domicile or his temple or his home, we had to choose a place within the 12 signs of the zodiac that was in complete conformity with the nature of the sun himself. So the very first thing that we know about the sun is that the sun is a fiery planet. Therefore, we already know that insofar as domiciles of the sun are concerned, we have to find a fiery sign for the sun to call his domicile or his temple. But there are some other things we know about the sun. The sun is a fiery planet. He is hot and dry. He is a diurnal or a daytime planet. He is a masculine planet. He is the king the king of all of the other planets and the universal significator of kings in general. And finally, we know that the sun is the universal source of heat within the cosmos. Therefore, any sign of the zodiac that we would choose to be the domicile of the sun would also have to be a sign that was able to hold the full power of the sun's heat and intensity more than any other sign. Now, even though there are three fire signs within the zodiac, 
Leo, Sagittarius, and Aries, only one of those fire signs has the ability to hold all of these considerations that the sun is needing it to hold. Sagittarius can't do it because Sagittarius represents the end of the autumn and the beginning of the winter. Therefore, Sagittarius doesn't have the internal fortitude to hold the raging flame of the regal sun at all. So Sagittarius is already not able to be in that position of being the domicile of the sun. Similarly, Aries represents the uprushing fire of the springtime that still is holding some of the cold of winter within it. At the beginning of the springtime, if you live in a place that has the ability to show you the changing of the four seasons, you very well know that at the beginning of the springtime, it's probably just as cold, if not colder, than the winter. We still have days of snow even after the season of Aries has begun. And so as a result of that, neither was Aries as forceful as Aries might be as a sign of the zodiac, neither was Aries considered to be the actual temple or domicile that was able to hold the full glory of the sun in an ongoing and a continuous basis. Which leaves us with only one other option. And the final option is Leo, of course. Now, we would have known that Leo was the first and the only option based on the fact that Leo is directly adjacent to Cancer, which earlier we said was one of the considerations that the sun and the moon needed to be wed within the zodiac in the same way that they are wed in life in general. So since the zodiac represents our primary template for everything essentially, we needed for that primary template to also show us this relationship of the sun and the moon as being Lord and Lady wed in holy matrimony for all time. Therefore, Leo being adjacent to Cancer represents this in the best of ways. However, Leo also holds within itself many of the considerations that we just mentioned in relationship to the sun. But Leo is a fire sign, therefore his nature conforms to the fiery nature of the sun. Leo is hot and dry, therefore his nature conforms to the choleric nature of the sun. Leo is a masculine sign, therefore his nature conforms to the masculine nature of the sun. Leo is a diurnal sign or a daytime sign, therefore his nature conforms to the diurnal or the daytime nature of the sun. Leo is a fixed sign, Therefore, his nature conforms to this fixed and this noble way in which the sun operates throughout the zodiac. We know that the sun is the only planet that does not go retrograde. Some would say, well, the moon doesn't go retrograde. But when we read our classical texts, we read that even though the moon doesn't go retrograde, the moon has periods of such slowness where the moon seems to be slowing down, that can be compared to a type of retrogradation on the part of the moon. But also, the sun is the only planet that has the ability to stay completely fixed to the ecliptic. The ecliptic is the path that the sun makes around our Earth from a geocentric perspective. In reality, the ecliptic is the path that the Earth makes around the sun from any other perspective other than a geocentric perspective. However, from our geocentric Earth-based perspective, the ecliptic is the path that the sun makes around the Earth. And while the other planets, Saturn, Jupiter, Mars, Venus, Mercury, Moon, have the ability to be a little bit above or a little bit below the ecliptic or on the ecliptic, the sun is the only planet that marches steadily forward on the ecliptic for all time because the sun itself literally is the planet that defines what the ecliptic is. So this fixed nature within the sun, the fact that the sun never deviates is something that we also find within the fixed sign of Leo. Therefore, Leo becomes the sign of the zodiac that is most worthy of holding the regal fixed nobility of the sun. 
And just as we consider the sun to be the universal significator of kings, Leo being the lion is the universal significator of the king of all of the beasts in general, being the lion. And so we have found for ourselves the domiciles of our lady, as well as the domicile of our Lord in the form of the sun and the moon through their domiciles of Cancer and Leo. Now from there, everything else seems to pan out in a logical way. Once we've established a location for the moon and the sun, everything else fans out in our 12 signs of the zodiac in accordance with the Chaldean order of Saturn, Jupiter, Mars, Venus, and Mercury. If we found a location for the sun and the moon, then naturally we can also find a location for the planets that stand at the furthest distance of the sun and the moon. And we know from our Chaldean order that Saturn is furthest from the moon. Therefore, Saturn is dry because he has no ability to appropriate unto himself the moist vapors of the moon or the earth. And we know that Saturn is also standing furthest away from the sun. Therefore, he is cold because he has no ability to appropriate unto himself any of the heat that we consider to be germane or native to the sun. So our cold and dry Saturn from our Chaldean order becomes superimposed on our zodiacal order based on his relationship to the sun and the moon. And that is why Saturn rules not just Capricorn, which represents the beginning of the winter, but Saturn also rules Aquarius, which represents the middle of the winter, when the winter is at its most unforgiving, when the time of the year is the coldest, which is a which is a quality that we associate with Saturn, Saturn being the furthest removed planet from the moisture of the earth and the moon, as well as from the heat or the warmth of the sun. Or here we have Cancer having its opposition to Capricorn. And we also have Leo having its opposition to Aquarius in the same way that we might consider the moon to be naturally opposite to Saturn because of them, because of Saturn existing on the complete opposite side of the spectrum from the moon, as well as having the sun be opposite to Saturn in a sense, since the sun is also having that same relationship with Saturn. So from establishing the homes of our lady and lord in the shape of the moon and the sun, we then go on to establish the domiciles of the planet that is furthest from the moon and the sun in the Chaldean order, which is Saturn. And then from there, we have nothing else but the Chaldean order that fills in the rest of the signs of the zodiac. So from moon to Saturn and sun to Saturn, we have Saturn, Jupiter, Jupiter, Mars, Mars, skip the sun because we know that the sun has already been placed adjacent the moon. And we go on with the Chaldean order, Venus, Venus, Mercury, Mercury, and the moon. Saturn, Jupiter, Mars, sun, Venus, Mercury, moon. So here within this diagram, we see the same Chaldean order that we drilled into our hearts and souls a few weeks ago, coming back to be that same Chaldean order that represents the harmony that we find within the domicile rulers of the 12 signs of the zodiac. Now, when I was younger, 
seeing this Saturn, Saturn next to each other. I didn't really understand why we should have Saturn twice on either side, but I didn't actually question it because I came up through traditional astrology, through a traditional framework where I was using the Chaldean order within the context of my larger Kabbalistic tarot studies. So it never once occurred to me that it could be any other way other than to have the two domiciles of Saturn side by side next to each other. However, what we find is that there's a spirit of invention that exists within astrology, and a part of that spirit of invention has to do with this topic of rulership, or specifically with the topic of domicile rulership. And out of this spirit of invention, when we started to discover other planets within the sky beyond the rings of Saturn, we collectively and logically perhaps assumed that those other planets deserved to have signs of the zodiac that they ruled in much the same way as Saturn, Jupiter, Mars, Sun, Venus, Mercury, and the Moon have signs of the zodiac that they ruled. We could see how this type of thinking could emerge but we can also see from understanding the harmonies upon which the theme of Mundi is built, how and why this thought process is erroneous within the greater scope of our astrological practice. When we view the theme of Mundi as being the foundation of all astrology, and when we view the theme of Mundi as being born out of a natural set of harmonies that exist within the philosophy of classical astrology, we do not see any space within this theme of Mundi that can accommodate the entry of other planets. The theme of Mundi is not conformable to the discovery of Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto, or to the discovery of any other planets that we have found since then. However, in the year 1781, when William Herschel and his sister Caroline Herschel discovered Uranus, the astrological community said, oh boy, we found another planet. Now we can fix that mistake of the ancients. Because the astrological community at that time, kind of like me in my own youth, saw this Saturn, Saturn next to each other and said, hmm, that doesn't look quite right. Maybe something was wrong there. And so when we found Uranus, we thought that Uranus should be the ruler of a sign of the zodiac. And that is how come we have Uranus taking on this role of being the ruler of Aquarius within the context of modern astrology. However, that thought process is simplistic when we compare it to the intrinsic harmonies and beauty of a more classical perception of why Saturn should be the ruler of Aquarius and why Saturn is the only ruler of Aquarius. Similarly, when Neptune was discovered in the year 1846, the astrological community still reeling after only having just discovered Uranus almost a century earlier, said to themselves, hey, we're discovering more planets. Therefore, if Uranus has supplanted Saturn as being the new ruler of Aquarius, then it must also make sense that Neptune should supplant Jupiter in being the new ruler of Pisces. And that is how we now have a version of astrology today where people are of the assumption that Neptune is the ruler of Pisces. A wrong assumption, a dangerous assumption, an incorrect assumption when measured against the actual backdrop of classical astrology, which is the roots of all the astrology that we practice in the West. In the year 1930, when Pluto was discovered, the entire astrological community erupted once more. And they said, oh my goodness, we have found another planet. Therefore, and at that point of therefore, there was nothing but an empty, silent hum. Because up until that point, what they were doing was placing the new planets based on moving backwards in the zodiac, or placing the new planets based on 
moving forward in the zodiac from Aquarius to Pisces, which meant that the next option that they had in terms of supplanting the ruler of a sign and changing that ruler of that sign for another planet was to place Pluto here as the domicile ruler of Aries. And at that point, the astrological community caught itself and said, wait, that can't be possible because there is no other planet in the entire astrological kingdom that has the ability to do Aries as good as Mars can. There's no other planet that can actually supplant Mars as being the specific ruler of Aries. Therefore, hold on, wait a minute, we cannot actually transform or change Mars as being the rule of Aries because if we change Mars as being the rule of Aries, we change something that is fundamental to this astrology that we practice and something that we built our entire notion of astrology around for thousands of years. Mars must remain the rule of Aries. However, what do we do with this new planet Pluto? So instead of following the logical sequence that was established after the discovery of Uranus in 1781, they broke ranks and chose to place Pluto as the ruler of the second Mars ruled sign, which is the sign of Scorpio. And that is why we find this weird thing happening where we have the double sign of Saturn being changed for another planet, the double sign of Jupiter being changed for another planet. But instead of moving towards Aries and transforming the ruler of Aries to Pluto, the astrologers after 1930 said, no, that cannot be the case. We have to make Pluto be the ruler of Scorpio because that makes us feel more comfortable because we need for Mars to continue to be the ruler of Aries because that just makes sense. Now, it's interesting to know that there were certain astrologers at that time, and there remains astrologers to this day who will say that Pluto is the ruler of Aries, to which I have absolutely no response. Because if you understand astrology based on the classical frameworks that astrology was built, then you understand that this notion of modern rulers of the signs of the zodiac makes literally virtually zero amount of sense at all. Similarly, when we bring this down within the framework of natal astrology, where we are using the sign that's on the cusp of the ascendant to indicate which planet is going to be the ruler of the native and therefore the representative of the native. If a person has Scorpio rising, then that means that that person and everyone else who was born within roughly 25 years of that person is also going to have their ruler of the ascendant, in this case, Pluto, be in the same one sign of the zodiac. So for example, let's consider Pluto being in Capricorn at this moment, which it has been in for quite some time. If we consider Pluto spending somewhere around 24 to 25 years in a given sign of the zodiac, then that means that every single person who was born within a 25-year period of time would have their Plutos in Capricorn, which would seem to make no sense whatsoever, given the type of diversity that natal astrology is meant to describe. Does that mean that all of us with Pluto in Capricorn approach the world in the exact same sort of way? given the fact that that Pluto is probably going to be in aspect with other modern planets. So does that mean that all of us who would have experienced our Plutos being in a particular relationship with Neptune or Uranus, 
maintain those qualities as core components of our soul and psyche? On a practical level, the answer to that seems to be no. Because on a practical level, we cannot rightfully argue and say that everyone who is born in a 25-year period of time with Scorpio as their rising sign is going to approach the world in the same sort of way. So what we find in the modern planets of Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto is a slowness of motion that does not actually accommodate the sort of diversity that we assume astrology is meant to describe. And that's just one of the many reasons why we don't use the modern planets of Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto in that way at Oraculos. However, we do use those modern planets as representing important groups of concepts within astrology that become even more important if they're strongly highlighted in a particular chart, but of themselves, we do not consider Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto to be the rulers of anything whatsoever. That is it for our topic on the theme of Mundi for today. I hope that you found this very insightful, and I hope that this has enriched your understanding of classical astrology in some way. I know that there's a lot of things that come up with the theme of Mundi, especially themes like the rulership of the sign to the zodiac that can sometimes be a little bit off-putting, especially if we have gotten used to a particular way of astrology manifesting for us or through our own astrological education. But I do hope that this video helps to clear up for you some of the misconceptions that we have around why the signs of the zodiac are ruled by the specific planets that they're ruled by. And I hope that this also has given you some depth of insight that you can use within your own astrological practice. So thank you so much for joining us here once again. As always, please subscribe to the Oraculos podcast as well as like this video. And if you want to study with us in a deeper way, please do sign up for our Foundations of Classical Astrology this coming fall 2022. Thank you so much. Have a great day and talk to you soon. Bye-bye.